0: Welcome to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast, featuring sermons given at our church and community center located in the Lincoln Estates neighborhood in Gainesville, Florida. If you find these messages beneficial, if you're part of our community, or if you want to help support the services we're providing to Southeast Gainesville, you can text the word GIVE to 352-562-7771 to make tax-deductible donations. Here's this week's message. I'm going to move into the teaching time today, and we're in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, in our series that we started two weeks ago on the Kingdom of God that's going to take us up into Advent this year. We're focusing on the Kingdom of God and the Sermon on the Mount because we're in a season where everything is crazy in our our politics and in our society and in our world. It's a good time for us to be reminded uh, that we are citizens of the Kingdom of God first and what that means and how we're to carry that out. And the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus tells us what that's like um, more than he tells us in any other place. And today I'm going to focus on chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, in what is probably one of the most misunderstood and mistranslated parts of all of scripture. This has led to really bad things. So let me read it to you. Matthew 5, 38 through 42 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I'm telling you no to evil resistance. Instead, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one to them also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your robe, give them your underwear too. And if anyone makes you his porter for a mile, go with him for two. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn away one who wishes to borrow from you. And you'll see on the screen And we'll talk more about this as we go. The words that are in bold italics are the commands that Jesus gives us in this passage. He commands us to turn the other cheek. He commands us to give them our underwear. He commands us to go a second mile and to give and not turn away folks who need money from us. Now, this passage has been a problem for a long time for a lot of people. Uh, both Luther and Calvin rejected this. Nearly all the Protestant t- tradition follows them in rejecting this as just impractical. It's, it's you can't possibly live this way. You can't follow this teaching. Is what b- both Luther and Calvin have said, and, and many who have followed them as well. Um, we mistake this to be to be Jesus calling us to be weak and to be passive, uh, merely giving into evil, not resisting evil, and. Uh, It sets us up as chumps to be abused and suckers to be taken advantage of. At least that's the way we've been taught to read this. But I'll remind you, this is Jesus talking. We're talking about Jesus. So if we're saying that we can't live by this teaching, if we're saying that we have to resist, reject this teaching as, as not possible, we can't possibly live by this sort of ethic and make it through the world, then we've got a problem because both Matthew and Luke record this teaching from Jesus. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's right here more than anywhere else where we find out whether we're going to follow Jesus or not. And the first step to that is to understand what Jesus means and to put it in the proper context. The commands here to turn the slapped cheek, to let them have all of our clothes, to carry their load for mile upon mile, uh, these all echo what Jesus did in his execution. They slapped his face. They stripped him. They made him carry his cross as far as he could. And then they made Simon of Cyrene carry his cross. It's the same verb used in that. They pressed Simon into service and forced him to carry the load for Jesus. And it's not only these things happened in the in the passion of the Christ. It's also that these are predicted. Uh, Jesus is echoing Isaiah 50 and Psalm 37 in their messianic prophecies. This is central to the story. This is the heart of the gospel. Okay, have I put enough emphasis on this already? We have to take time to understand this and we have to understand how we are to live by it. Part of the confusion around these sayings is that we fail to understand the audience that Jesus is addressing and both Howard Thurman and Walter Wink help us with that. So here's a couple of quotes. Howard Thurman says the basic fact of Christianity as it was born in the mind of this Jewish teacher and thinker appears as a technique of survival for the oppressed. But too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the strong and the powerful and against the weak and oppressed. this, despite the gospel. Walter Wink, who is going to be important for this sermon today, he says it this way, there are among his hearers, people who are subjected to these very indignities forced to stifle outrage at their dehumanizing treatment by the hierarchical system of class, race, gender, age, and status, and as a result of imperial occupation. In all of these examples, people who were hearing Jesus give this sermon, they were the ones who were being slapped. They were the ones whose garments were being taken in court. They are the ones who are being pressed into service to carry loads for, for the Roman soldiers. They are the ones who are in need uh, of financial assistance and helping each other out. Um, This is the reality that they're facing. And we have to understand that if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying and how it applies to our lives. So here are the commands. Turn the other cheek. Give them your underwear. Go the second mile. Give to the one who asks of you. Don't turn away one who wishes to borrow These are the commands that Jesus gives us in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in this teaching, I'm just gonna deal with the first three. We're gonna come back to money later in the series because Jesus has more to say about money and we'll pick up this sentence at the end of this part of of the sermon and we'll put that with the other things he has to say about money later on. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But let's start with this first part of the passage, this first verse, verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The old law of the tooth, lex talionis, for those of you who know the Latin phrase, um, this is an old law. Some people think this is a Hebrew law from Torah, but it's actually older than that. you find this in Hammurabi's code. This is really old law. This was kind of how things were done. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Torah, uh, the Hebrew law, actually puts limitations on this. Torah limits retaliation. For one, the Hebrew Bible forbids revenge. You're not allowed to just engage in revenge. That's off the table if you're following the law as Jewish people would have done. Uh, Restitution was to be measured and adjudicated by the community, by a judicial system. And so as they applied it, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was basically measure for measure. This was a standard for judicial decisions, not for personal revenge, not for vigilantism. So basically, if you lost a tooth, then you would get a tooth's worth of compensation. And there are dollar amounts or monetary amounts assigned uh, to those different injuries that might occur. And remember, we talked about last week, Jesus says in this sermon, he did not come to set aside the law. So he's not setting aside Torah. He's not saying measure for measure is a bad system of justice. No, it's a pretty good basic foundation for justice. I mean, I have to tell you, if our justice system in the United States could just manage that much measure for measure, we'd be much better off than we are now. We're not even there. Uh, We're in a system where we have mandatory minimum sentences and mandatory minimum sentences don't have anything to do with measure for measure. They're not just. And they make no sense in a Hebrew or in a Christian sense of justice. And then we have examples like we saw this week with Brianna Taylor, who was denied justice. I, I don't know exactly what should have happened, but nothing happened. She wasn't acknowledged at all. We did not get any measure for measure in that situation. And until we have at least that modicum, that basic foundation of justice in our society, we're going to continue to be in trouble. So Jesus is not setting this aside. He is going beyond it. He is calling us to more than that. But he's not setting aside measure for measure justice. That's a good foundation for any functioning society. So the second part here, remember we talked about this last week, the first thing Jesus does is he raises the Torah standard and he affirms it. And then he talks about the problem we have, our sinful proclivity, our sinful nature, which gets interjected and messes up what the law had prescribed for us. So here in verse 39a, he says this, and this is where the mistranslation really starts to come to bear. He says, and I'm telling you, your translation probably says, do not resist evil or do not resist an evil person or do not resist an evildoer or something along those lines. Anything that sounds like that or or reads like that is the worst possible translation of this Greek phrase. Okay, for, for, for a few reasons. One, this is not a command. We'll get to the commands in a minute. This is not a command. It sounds like a command when it's translated, do not resist. But Jesus is not using an imperative verb here. This is not a command. It's an infinitive verb. So to resist, or in this case, not to resist. And it's followed by a dative noun. I'll give you a little bit of grammar for you grammar nerds. The evil is the dative noun. So evil might or might not be personified. Uh, The evil can mean the evil one or the evil force or just evil in Greek. And it seems most likely to either be a dative of means, what I have here, not to resist by means of evil. Um, Or evil might be serving as the subject of resistance, as I have it in that last one. So it might mean... I'm telling you not to resist by means of evil. That would be a legitimate translation of the Greek I'm telling you not to resist for the purpose of evil would also be a legitimate translation of the Greek and the one I've chosen with which is probably the more elegant and the easiest is I'm telling you no to evil resistance and the implication here is a Violence you are not to engage in violent resistance. What Jesus is saying here is don't resist violently don't revolt Don't rebel. Don't engage in an insurrection. That's off the table for us. We can't do that. And I can see where eye for eye and tooth for tooth might lead you down that road if you have a violent proclivity. And guess what, humans? We have a violent proclivity. So don't do that. But he's also saying, don't lay down to oppression. Don't submit. Because by submitting, you're also being complicit in evil. Because the Hebrew Bible also tells us this. Leviticus 19.16 says, do not stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed. We can't do either. We can't resist violently and we can't be submissive and passive in the face of violence. We have to find a third way. Walter Wink says it this way, rather find a third way that is neither submission nor assault, neither flight nor fight, a way that can secure your human dignity and begin to change the power equation. These commands break the cycle of humiliation with humor and even ridicule, exposing the injustice of the system. They recover for the poor, a modicum of initiative that can force the oppressor to see them in a new light. So the command here is not don't resist. It's quite the opposite. The commands Jesus is going to give us that we're about to talk about are all about resistance. They're just not violent resistance. They're nonviolent resistance. So I'm really sorry if through your life you've been taught by people not to resist evil. If you've been taught to put up with abusive husbands or abusive uh, bosses at work or abusive pastors because of this verse, I'm really sorry. I'm, they weren't actively mistranslating it. It goes way back, it goes back to at least Lutheran Calvin, if not farther. It's a pretty hard construction in Greek to suss out but it's had really bad effects on us. It's led us to be passive. It's led us to just turn a blind eye to injustice and to abuse and to oppression and to much harm to many people in the church. And all I'm gonna tell you is, I'm really sorry that's the case and that can't be the way we go forward. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not passive and it is not submissive. It's creative. It's resistant, and it's really funny, as I want to tell you now. So let's look at the next part. Part B of verse 39 says, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one to them also. What Jesus is talking about specifically here, and you can pick up on it because he says, The right cheek. Turn the right cheek. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek, the left cheek. What he's talking about here is the good old backhanded slap. The backhanded slap was a sign of admonishing inferiors in this culture, kind of like it would be now if that were even acceptable to do. So this is social violence as much or more than it is physical violence. Uh, This is what masters would do to their slaves. This is what husbands would do to their wives. This is what parents would do to their children, men would do to women, what Romans would do to Jews. If you're interacting with someone who you want to put in their place and they're your inferior, you give them a backhanded slap on their right cheek. And what Jesus is saying is like, look, if you're in that situation, when someone has backhanded you on the right cheek, you can't fight back. That's not going to really work. But what you're used to doing, which is like cowering in submission, that's also not what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. You need to stand up and say, yeah, go ahead and hit me on the other one. Stand your ground, stand right there, and say, yeah, okay, how about this one? And when you do that, you put the person who has slapped you completely out of their reckoning. You have shown them that their action to humiliate you and put you in your place has not worked. You have said to them, I will not be put down. I will not be humiliated. I'm a human being the same as you're a human being. And you put them in a really awkward spot. Because what are they going to do now? If they're going to hit you on the other cheek, they either have to use their left hand, which people didn't touch each other with their left hands, kind of like you see if you've ever been to India these days, or they have to hit you with their fist or with their open hand. But in that culture, if you hit someone with your fist or your open hand, you're fighting them as an equal. And so what you're really inviting the person to do is fight you as an equal. You are standing up and saying, I am your equal, I am not your inferior. I'm a human being the same as you." That's what Jesus is saying. Now that puts the teaching of turn the other cheek completely opposite of what we've been taught and what we've heard. Walter Wing says it this way, "'If he hits with a fist, he makes the other his equal, acknowledging him as a peer. But the point of the back of the hand is to reinforce institutionalized inequality. He has been given notice that this underling is in fact a human being. In that world of honor and shaming, he has been rendered impotent to instill shame in a subordinate. He has been stripped of his power to dehumanize the other. As Gandhi taught, the first principle of nonviolent action is that of non-cooperation with everything humiliating. So it's just a refusal. to I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm also not going to fight you back. I'm just going to stand here and invite you to do something next and you don't have a next. So then what are we going to do? So in the next one, verse 40, look at this one. Jesus says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your robe, give them your underwear too. Now, we've got a little bit of an issue here in that Matthew and Luke both have this teaching, but they flip it. I'm actually using Luke's version here because what Luke has is if someone wants to sue you and take your robe or your cloak, give them your underwear or your tunic or your undergarment as well. Matthew flips it and says, if if they want to sue you for your undergarment, give them your cloak or your robe too. But I think Matthew got it wrong on this case. It might just be a scribal error or something um, because what Luke does is he corrects it. And you know, Luke is copying from Matthew. And Luke makes this correction because he's putting it more in line with the Hebrew Bible, which teaches us this. Check this out. Exodus 22 says, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. If ever you take your neighbor's robe and pawn, you shall restore it before the sun goes down. For it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as cover. And what else shall that person sleep? And if your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate. Deuteronomy 24 says this, When you make your neighbor loan of any kind, you shall not go into the house to take the pledge. You shall wait outside. While the person to whom you are making the loan brings the pledge out to you. If the person is poor, you shall not sleep in the garment given you as the pledge. You shall give the pledge back by sunset, so that your neighbor may sleep in the robe and bless you. You shall not take a widow's robe and pledge. And then Amos two says this this is a stern warning that Ezekiel says something similar to as well. They who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, lay themselves down beside every altar, Upon robes taken in pledge, so undergarments were not given in pledge. They weren't pawned. They weren't used in loans. Only the outer garments, the cloaks, were done that with. So basic Jewish dress was: you had a robe, a cloak made of heavy wool that you wore as your outer garment, and then under that you wore like basically what we would call a nightshirt or a nightgown or a long, you know, thin garment like a tunic. Um, And that was all you had. There was nothing under the tunic. Those are the only two things you had. You had a tunic and then you had a robe over that. And remember, Jesus is talking to a crowd of people who are suffering under the economic tyranny of Rome. Uh, Most of them, by this point, had lost their traditional family land and were working that same land as sharecroppers, the land they used to own and should own and should be returned to them on the year of Jubilee that was no longer practiced. They were now working as slaves or as tenant farmers. And they were kept down economically by a predatory lending system that's not unlike some of what we see in our own day and age, in our own economy, uh, among the poor and even the lower middle class. It's expensive to be poor. It always has been. Um, So debt, exorbitant interest rates, and crushing taxes uh, from the Romans and from the temple uh, leadership were just making life miserable for most of the people uh, in Judea, for the people that are listening to the sermon that Jesus is giving. This was their life. There were large estates that were owned by uh, absentee landlords, and those were managed by stewards who were really harsh, and they were worked by tenant farmers and by day laborers and by slaves. And these are the people who were listening to Jesus, the tenants, the day laborers, and the slaves. And it's no accident that when the revolt starts in year 66, a couple of decades after we're Uh, talking about here, uh, the first thing the revolutionaries did was they burned down the temple treasury because that's where all the records of debt were kept. These people were living under a crushing weight of debt. And into that, Jesus says, look, the very last thing of value you have is going to be your robe. And if you get into a situation where you've had to pawn that robe... And what the law says is whoever is loaning that money has to give you your robe back because that's not only the robe you wear by day it's also the blanket you sleep with or sleep under at night uh, in the worst pinch they would pawn this robe and then have to go about only in their in their tunic in their undershirt so imagine the picture that jesus is painting here okay you are so poor That some rich person is suing you for your robe. You don't have anything left of value uh, for them to get. So they're going after your robe. And of course, the system is completely on their side. You have no chance. And what Jesus says is when you go into the court and they demand your robe from you, give them your robe and then take your underwear off and give them that too. And stand there, stark naked in the courtroom and walk right out with nothing on. That's what he's saying to do. That's what his hearers would have heard and understood him saying to do. That's right. Strip naked in front of the court and hand your creditor your underwear. And what that does is it puts the creditor out of his reckoning the way it puts the slapper out of his reckoning. Jesus is commanding his followers, refuse to be humiliated. Turn the humiliation back on the ones who are actually doing injustice. And of course, you know nakedness was was a taboo in this culture. But what's interesting is that nakedness was more taboo for the person causing the nakedness than for the person who is naked. Think about Noah in Genesis nine, right? And so you're actually shaming the person who is forcing you to give up your garment. It's similar to what Isaiah did. If you read Isaiah chapter twenty, he walked around for three years naked as a prophetic witness against the system that was unjust in his own day. And can you imagine a more stunning protest against the debt system? Can you imagine a more uh, visceral way to call out a bad money lender? You know, word would have gotten out if this had happened and people are like, wow, that guy's harsh. He's not a man of honor. He's not a man of justice. He must be taking advantage of people. They're literally leaving court naked. Wink says it this way. The powers that be literally stand on their dignity. Nothing depotentiates them faster than deft lampooning. By refusing to be awed by their power, the powerless are emboldened to seize the initiative, even where structural change is not immediately possible. This message far from being a counsel to perfection unattainable in this life is a practical, strategic measure for empowering the oppressed, and it is being lived out all over the world today by powerless people ready to take their history into their own hands. Jesus provides here a hint of how to take on the entire system by unmasking its essential cruelty and by burlesquing its pretensions to justice. Here is a poor man who will no longer be treated as a sponge to be squeezed dry by the rich. He accepts the laws as they stand, pushes them to absurdity, and reveals them for what they have become. He strips naked, walks out before his fellows, and leaves this creditor and the whole economic edifice that he represents stark naked. This is the resistance Jesus is calling us to. So let's look at the third one. Verse 41 says this, And if anyone makes you his porter for a mile, go with him for two. Now what Jesus is talking here is about a specific thing that you probably aren't aware of. It was a common practice in the Roman Empire for soldiers who had to walk everywhere to press people into service to carry their loads. Uh, Roman infantrymen would carry packs that would be you know, somewhere between 60 and 85 pounds in weight, not including their weapons. And so they would often seize people, people who were you know, not Roman citizens. If they weren't a Roman citizen, anything could happen to you, right? So they would take non-Roman citizens, like all the people who were listening to Jesus, and say, here, you do this thing, and you would have to do it because they told you to. And so they would make you carry their packs, but because the Romans were really sensitive about not pushing people too far because revolt was the last thing they wanted, they instituted a rule. They actually adopted this rule from the Persians And the rule was, look, you can only do that for one mile. You can't make a person go more than one mile. Sure, you can grab anybody you want, if they're not a citizen, and you can force them to carry your pack for a mile. But then you have to let them go. You have to let them off, you have to let them stop. And if you don't, you get into trouble. So soldiers who did not follow the one mile rule were were subject to punishment. And sometimes the punishment was they had to pay the victim money, Sometimes they would lose wages also. Sometimes they would have their rank reduced or even be dishonorably discharged. Uh, Sometimes they were made to sleep outside the fort, especially in the winter, like you go sleep outside in the snow. Uh, Sometimes they were made to stand barefoot in public all day to shame them in front of all the people they're supposed to be intimidating. But most of the time they were just flogged because that was what Romans liked to do more than anything was flog people. So imagine this picture. This soldier who's going to make you carry a pack for 80 pounds for a mile. First of all, that's a lot. of 80 pounds for a mile is a lot. Okay, think about that. 80 pounds, carrying it with your bare hands. You don't have a wheelbarrow. You don't have, you know, anything. It's just you. That's a lot of weight for a long stretch. And then when you get done, you're now a mile away from whatever it is you were doing before this soldier grabbed a hold of you. Um, what Jesus is saying is when you get to the end of that, look, you have no choice in the mile. They're going to grab you, they're going to make you do it, and you can't say no. What Jesus says is here's how you resist that. When you get to that end of that mile, you say, I'll go a second mile. Wink says it this way, this again is about how the oppressed can recover the initiative and assert their human dignity in a situation that cannot for the time being be changed. The rules are Caesar's, but how one responds to the rules is God's. And Caesar has no power over that. So again, picture the situation. A soldier has grabbed you and made you carry his heavy pack for a mile. You were in the middle of your own work. And now you're tired and a mile away from where you need to be. And you get there and you say, hey, I'll, I'll go another mile for you. What's the soldier going to do now? He's like, um, what? I, I'm supposed to let you go now. If you go further, I'm going to get in trouble. What are you up to? You have to imagine the soldier's head would be like, what is this guy doing? What, is, what, do you, what do you want? So normally soldiers have to coerce people to carry their packs, and now this guy's doing it cheerfully and willingly, doesn't want to stop. Um, is he provoking me? Is he going to report me? Is he trying to get me in trouble? Is he being kind? That would be weird. Is he going to file a complaint? Am I going to get flogged because this guy carries my pack another mile? So imagine the end result of this is the Roman soldier is like begging the the Jewish person to give me my pack back. Give me my pack back. Let me go. This, the soldier is thrown completely off balance. He's deprived of the victim response that he's used to. You're taking back the power of choice. You're seizing the initiative. He's not dealt with a problem like that before. He's never been forced to make a decision about what to do in that sort of situation. He's used to feeling superior, and he likes that. He doesn't know how to not feel superior in the situation that he's in. So, again, like the naked in court situation, it's kind of funny. And the jokes are all but lost on us, but you just have to imagine that the audience Jesus had at first would have been in stitches by this point. This is really funny stuff. I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, Walter Wing says it this way. Jesus does not encourage Jews to walk a second mile in order to build up merit in heaven or to exercise super piety or to kill the soldier with kindness. He is helping an oppressed people find a way to protest and neutralize an onerous practice despised throughout the Roman Empire. He is not giving a non-political message of spiritual world transcendence. He is formulating a worldly spirituality in which the people at the bottom of society or under the thumb of imperial power learn to recover their humanity. So the commands here are turn your other cheek, look them in the eye, and make them face you as a human. Give them your underwear. That's what you do to creditors. Give it to them all, including your underwear. And that's what I'm calling the sermon. Give them your underwear. Uh, And then the third one is go the second mile. Put the soldier out of his reckoning. Put him out of bounds and make him reckon with this kingdom way of life. This is the way. We have to be the oppressed, though, uh, or at least be with the oppressed, be in community with the oppressed, for these commands to even be possible, to even make sense. If we're the oppressor, if we're complicit in oppression, Well, Jesus has commands for that, and we'll get to those as we go through this uh, in due time. So here are variants that Wink gives us uh, for the way Jesus is teaching us here. To seize the moral initiative, find a creative alternative to violence, to assert our own humanity and dignity as a person, to meet force with ridicule or humor, to break the cycle of humiliation, to refuse to submit or to accept the inferior position. To expose the injustice of the system. To take control of the power dynamic. Make the powers make decisions for which they are not prepared. Recognize our own power. Be willing to suffer rather than retaliate. Force the oppressor to see you in a new light. Deprive the oppressor of a situation where a show of force is effective. Be willing to undergo the penalty of breaking unjust laws. Die to fear of the old order and its rules, and to seek the oppressor's transformation. Now I know as I share all this that some of you have experienced oppression. If you're a woman, you know what this is like. If you're a person of color, if you're a person who has lived in poverty or is living in poverty, you know what this, this is talking about. You have some way to understand this. Others of you may not have any way to reckon with this, and we'll get there. But this is the message Jesus has for us in this. It's not passive. It's not submissive. It's also not violent. This is kingdom resistance. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. This is the way. Let's take communion. If you've got something to eat, grab a hold of that. I've got a piece of rice checks that I'm gonna try to eat and not be noisy with. And as we Lift this up together in unity, in unison. This becomes the body of Christ for us, as his followers, as his community, as his bride. And here's what I want us to say this morning with the, with the body, with the bread, is here's to not resisting violently. We don't resist violently. And it, whether it's physical violence, or verbal violence, or social violence, or emotional violence, all of that is off the table for us. We can't be violent. That's not okay for followers of Jesus. That is not the way. We have to let go of all of that. We can't use coercion ever for anything and be doing the work of the kingdom. The kingdom does not come by coercion. So, sisters and brothers, take your bit of the body of Christ and say with me, here's to not resisting violently. did you take the cup? I've got actual grape juice this morning. Um, This becomes the blood of Christ shed for us, both to procure our salvation and to teach us the way to live, to give us the power to live in this kingdom way. And it's about not submitting to oppression. We don't submit to oppression. Just like we can't use violence to bring in the kingdom, we can't passively let oppression happen and see the kingdom come. If the kingdom is going to come, it's going it's to come because we say no to oppression. In all of the creative ways that Jesus will lead us to do it in, in all of the ways uh, that are humorous and fun and preserve humanity for those who are being oppressed, we have to resist oppression of all forms. So here's to not submitting to oppression. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for being so courageous and so funny. But this is still a hard teaching. It's not an impossible teaching. It's not hard because it's impossible. It's hard because it's very possible. But it requires creativity. It requires courage. It requires community. Lord, give us the creativity to resist nonviolently. Give us the courage to stand up for ourselves and for those who are being oppressed. Lord, strengthen our community; that this would be who we are and what we're about at all times. That we hold each other up. That we give each other courage. We together, put our heads together and think creatively, how can we resist this? How can we stand against this? How can we send a message? How can we give them our underwear? Lead us in your way, Jesus. Amen. All right, sisters and brothers, I love you, and I hope to see your face soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast. For more information about our church and community center, including our food pantry, life skills training, legal aid, after-school and sports programs, and international missions, and how to contact us, visit GainesvilleVineyard.org. Or find us on Facebook. Our page name is GN Vineyard. We also have original worship songs available on iTunes. Just search for Gainesville Vineyard. You can support the work we're doing by texting the word GIVE to 352-562-7771 all donations are tax deductible we appreciate you listening to this message and pray the spirit speaks directly to you through something you've heard today god bless